Well, for those of you who are with us for the first time this morning, we are in a series in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and we've managed to make our way uh, all the way to to chapter 4. We're going to breach chapter 4 this morning, so we're making progress. Uh, Let me go ahead and begin by reading our passage this morning. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, and uh, we will go through chapter 4, verse 5. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is the Word of God. So I'm thinking, those who have been hanging in there with this series in 1 Corinthians, I'm thinking, I'm wondering, as you listen to these verses read, and you hear this sermon preached, if you haven't finally come to the conclusion that you believe in, deja vu. Because it seems as if Paul has said all of this before. And and it seems as if I've preached all of this before. And that's true. You'd be right to think that. All the way from chapter 1, verse 10... To the end of chapter 4, and we're not even there yet, Paul is addressing division in the church that is the result of foolish boasting in the church. And he's cycling through the same points over and over, but from different vantage points. God's wisdom is higher than man's wisdom. The saving wisdom of God is given by the Holy Spirit. He's explaining how the church in Corinth is, as he said in chapter 1, verse 2, the church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints together by the Spirit of God according to the gospel of Christ. He's still working all of that. And in the last half of chapter 4, which we'll look at next Sunday, Paul will cap it all off with a rebuke against their arrogance. And it's about time. But before that, in our passage this morning, Paul gives a summary of what he has said so far about God's wisdom in his gospel, and God's servants of his gospel. Those those two kind of things. 
With regard to wisdom and folly, Paul summarizes that the Corinthians' false sense of superior spirituality, which is exhibited in their boasting, in their favorite teachers, has caused them two significant problems. One, it's divided them. And two, it has rendered them unable to have all things that God has already given to them. They've come up short. They're living a substandard, spirit-filled life. And while they think of themselves abundantly spiritual by human standards, oh, we're so spiritual. We follow the right teachers. We're in the right groups. Their strife actually keeps them from having the things God wants them to have. So it's a false spirituality. And while strutting about as really successful witnesses because of their high spirituality, their division actually undermines their message of the gospel. They are, by their own divided witness, emptying the cross of its power. And so Paul says two things. He says in these verses in chapter 3, don't be fooled and also don't boast. Those are the two commands that he gives. Look again at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile. So Paul says to the Corinthians, we have a problem. We're prone to deceiving ourselves. And like the Corinthians, we know the gospel. The Corinthians know the gospel. We know that unbelievers, as unbelievers, we had a Romans 1 delusion, right? We suppressed the truth of God for a lie and worshipped ourselves rather than the Creator. We were unable to know the saving wisdom of God until the Holy Spirit regenerated us, genesis us to life so that we could hear the gospel and gave us faith so that we would believe in Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. What is shocking to us is that Paul says, even now, as believers, we're still prone to deceiving ourselves in this particular way. We want to live our Christian lives in the Spirit by our own human methods. Because we find them satisfying. Paul calls our worldly wisdom the wisdom of this age. It's the wisdom that functions in this present world order. It's the wisdom that put a man on the moon and structured democratic governments and created the latest computer-generated blockbuster movie. It's that wisdom. It's the intelligence that is Developing artificial intelligence. Wait, what? Yeah, we're so intelligent that we can make other things intelligent. Isn't that amazing? Like any new technology, AI will be used for good and it'll be used for bad. There'll be things we like about it and things we don't. The thing that concerns me right now is that I may not possess the intelligence to discern artificial intelligence from real intelligence. Maybe you don't have that concern, but you know me and my shortcomings. You see, the self-deception that Paul is confronting the Corinthians about is evident 
in their worldly compromise. The church is in this world, but we're not to be of this world. I, I, I hesitate to give too specific of examples because we'll fixate on them and then we'll argue about whether those were good examples or not, so that's not fruitful. Uh, but also, Paul doesn't give, give specific examples about a lot of things. The one thing he continually upholds as foolish is the approval of gospel teachers based on the popular standards of that day, the great orators, which, we, which we've already talked about at length. What he's pointing out to us is anything that seeks to please man rather than God. Give us that category. Anything that shines a light on the preacher or the church rather than on the cross. Anything that comes from the hearts motivated by self-service rather than by service to Christ crucified. He gives us these categories, these really good categories to think in so that we can discern God's wisdom from our folly. Those are the, those are the priceless gifts here, the categories. The church is not rooted in this age, this present world order. The church, though it is in this world, is not of this world. The church is strong when we realize our weakness before Christ. We're wise when we admit our wisdom is folly, and that we need God's wisdom. Nobody likes to be made a fool of. Nobody likes to be made a fool of someone else. We hate that. But we are fooling ourselves when we say, oh, I, I, I know how to deal with important matters in life, so I know how to deal with the things of God in the same way. I know how to build relationships and sell products and services, so I know how to evangelize and make friends out there. I know how to reason and learn and grow, and so, so I, can, I can use those methods that I use in the world to grow spiritually. Whose wisdom came first anyway? Whose wisdom came first? You know the old joke, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, whose wisdom came first? God's wisdom came first. In the beginning, God in his wisdom formed the heavens and the earth and everything in them. God's wisdom leads to life and human flourishing and glory. Paradise. When did man's wisdom and the wisdom of this age come into play? When Adam and Eve foolishly sought to display their wisdom as higher than God's wisdom. That's when man's wisdom came into play. And what, was their, what did their wisdom lead to? The fall, sin, violence, Death, judgment, and wrath. And the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We get it. So what's the answer to this problem of our own self-deception? The answer is to have absolute confidence in the wisdom of God. Have absolute confidence in the wisdom of God. Believe that God knows what he's doing and that he's for you. Believe that. Let go of your stupid and have confidence in God's wisdom. I heard somebody say that and it really gripped me. Kind of caught me there. I get that. Wait, stupid's a, a descriptive, right? An adjective or an adverb. Well, I turned it into a noun. Let go of your stupid, Scott, and have confidence in God's wisdom. How does Paul go about convincing us to do that? He gives evidence of the sovereign superiority of God's wisdom over man's from the Old Testament. 
which is the wise word of God, which is authoritative, and therefore it should convince us. He's done this before, back in chapter 1, verse 19, when he referenced Isaiah chapter 29, saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the sermon of the discerning I will thwart. God says those things. And here Paul quotes from Job, chapter 5, verse 13, God catches the wise in their craftiness, and he quotes from Psalm uh, 94, verse 11, God knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. The quote from Job is very interesting. I mean, you remember Job's friends, right? Yeah, not, not good at passing along wisdom when you need it. In Job chapter 5, Eliphaz is talking to Job, and he's saying things that are true, but then he goes on to completely misapply them to Job's life. Still, it's interesting that Paul quotes these words from Eliphaz that are true about God's wisdom. Turn back with me to Job chapter 5. Job chapter 5. Let me begin reading at verse 8. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lonely, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. These are true things. Verse 12, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. Here's the verse Paul quotes. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the day of time, in the daytime, and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Paul is telling us to remember that God is sovereign. He is in charge of everything. And he overrules everything that goes against his will. Even when men are really crafty, he uses their craftiness against them. Now you know what that looks like from our study in Genesis, don't you? Joseph's brothers were really crafty, and they got rid of him by selling him into slavery and deceiving their father. But God, in his wisdom, overruled their craftiness. What they intended for evil, God used for good and for the salvation of many. How about the example of Saul of Tarsus, the man who's writing this letter? Paul himself was on a crafty mission with legal papers and everything and permission to, to hunt down Christians in Damascus when Jesus caught him. That's what the verse says. He catches them in their craftiness. He caught Paul in his craftiness and brought his wily schemes to an end, didn't he? God's wisdom is greater and sovereign over all. Look at the self-deception of men in Psalm 94. Flip forward just a little bit from Job to Psalm 94. Let me begin reading in verse 7. The people are saying, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of people, fools when you would be wise. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? 
He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath, but they are futile. See, they think, those people think that God can't see their evil. They, they deceive themselves. That God did not have knowledge, let alone wisdom. You fools, God is the one who knows our thoughts, is what the psalmist says. You know, we, we think we know what we're doing because we have the wisdom of this age and because we've accomplished things in our lives. But the church's foundation has been laid in the age to come. In this present age, God is accomplishing His will in saving sinners and giving them spirit-filled lives through the preaching of the cross. And both preaching and the cross seem foolish to the people of this age. But God knows what He's doing, doesn't He? He knows what He's doing in His church and in your life. So don't deceive yourself thinking that you're wise according to the folly of this age. No, trust and be confident in the wisdom of God that is in you by the Spirit of God. Don't be foolish, Paul says, and don't be factious. Pick up in verse 21. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Paul says we have another problem. We're prone to boasting. Just like the Corinthians, we love to boast excessively about our favorite political leaders. And then we bring that same attitude, that same methodology of living, boasting excessively about people in the church. Watch the news or check your social media accounts. You see how inescapably true this is in our culture. Everybody's yelling about somebody down or yelling about somebody up. We expect it. If you turn on the news, if you open Facebook, if you open Twitter, you expect it. And we come to accept it. That people rant and complain about political leaders. 90% of the times it's personal attacks or mischaracterization. Nothing helpful at all. It's clickbait and unhelpful. But it's the way we do. So... We, as Christians, bring that way we do into the church. And now I'm talking about the broadly evangelical church in America, and I'm focusing on online behavior. We offer personal attacks and personal mischaracterizations. It's what we expect and it's what we've come to accept. Don't you see Christian leader after Christian leader after Christian leader and their followers arguing back and forth about stuff that does not affect your soul or your church? And yet you feel compelled to join in. Yeah, but Scott, it's how we do. Well, Paul says stop doing it. Stop doing it in your spirit-filled life. Stop doing it in your spirit-filled church. Or, or you're just going to come to find that 
neither one of them are spirit-filled. You've got to make this correction about your boasting. It's, and, and, and what Paul says kind of mashes together a few principles that Jesus taught his disciples. I'd say it this way. You can go on boasting in men and identifying yourself with certain teachers, and whatever that does for you here in this life is your limited reward. Limited reward. That's what you get. And that's so foolish to settle for the approval of a few people around you in this age. Or maybe a few people who aren't anywhere near you, but they're on the internet. When instead, you should be storing up treasure in heaven. Living wisely for the age to come is living wisely now. Do not boast empty boasts in men. Boast in Jesus Christ. This is... That should be a deja vu moment for you. Because back in chapter 2, Paul said, You are already in Christ, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If the Spirit has given us Christ, saving us according to the wisdom of God, why do we waste any time boasting in humans? I can relate to you a couple of reasons that I've observed in nearly 20 years of full-time ministry why this is so. One reason we boast, one reason we dig in our heels and double down is insecurity. It's your own personal insecurity. If you feel insecure in your theological convictions, maybe because someone is suddenly asking you questions, or circumstances in your life are forcing you to think about things that you haven't had to think about before. You Google. You Google on the internet or you search on YouTube looking for someone who sounds confident just so you can adopt that confidence as your own. And all your answers come from him and you avoid the risk of appearing less than knowledgeable to the people around you. Because you perceive that as being foolish. Another one is independence. This is more and more lately. Rather than commit to a local church and the leadership of the local church, you cobble together your own random discipleship from radio and internet pastors who have no idea you exist and no accountability for your soul. But it allows you to remain aloof. You get to maintain whatever safe distance you determine from the local church. Yeah, I don't really need brothers and sisters, just a, just a place to worship on Sundays. The Corinthians are saying, I feel more secure when I can boast in a real person who's an excellent presenter on this YouTube channel. He's got lots of likes. Lots of positive comments. The Corinthians are saying, I don't want to be connected to everyone in the church, just the ones who are good enough for me. That's why they boast in Paul or Apollos or Cephas and create their divisions. And the result is they have less, not more. All things are yours. Think about that for a second. All things are yours applies to the church. The you 
in you are Christ's is plural. The divided church that boasts in men is missing out on all things that are already theirs. How foolish. What folly. So how do we stop our empty boasting? By genuinely boasting in Jesus Christ. Genuinely boasting in Jesus Christ. What does Paul do to shift our boasting from men of the church to Christ and and really mean it from our hearts? To stop this folly of boasting and replace it with real glory giving to God. He says, all things are yours. Okay, that's a pretty big statement. Okay, that's a pretty big statement. And he says it twice. All things are yours in verse 21. And again, all are yours in verse 22. You see, you should want to know what that means. You should want to know what that means. You should be on the edge of your chair. That should arrest your attention. So what's Paul saying? What does Paul mean? He's saying that you have to believe that God is ruling the entire universe for the benefit of his church. You have to believe that God is ruling the entire universe for the benefit of his church. And that changes everything about how we look at the world and how we look at everything that happens in the world. God is using everything for us. By boasting in one man and his teachings, the Corinthians limit themselves to a substandard Christian life of quarreling and division. Oh, but you get, a, you get your bragging rights, at least for a little while. But in boasting in Christ, all gospel teachers are theirs. Did you get that? What are the all things that are, that are yours? Well, you get Paul and Apollos and Cephas. All gospel ministers are yours. Plus the world, plus life and death, plus the future and now. God is ordering all things Together for his church, he's using all things for the good of those who love him. Romans chapter 8. In fact, there's more of this same language in Romans chapter 8 that that builds to a very same crescendo. Beginning in verse 35 in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all of these, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, not things present, not things future, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We boast genuinely from the heart in Christ because we have all things in Christ. All faithful gospel teachers are ours. You don't have to pick one. You don't have to put down the others. All the world is ours. All of life 
All of death is ours. All things present and all things future are ours because we are Christ's and Christ is God's. God uses everything for his church. He uses everything to save sinners, to gather his church, to deepen our faith. God rules over everything for you. And we need to see why Paul's argument for us to not be foolish and boast in men is so powerfully convincing. Because his argument is lodged in the relationship of the Father and the Son. That's where he takes us. That's the sweet spot. The church has all things because we're Christ's. And Christ is God's. Only in Christ undivided can we claim all things. Remember what Paul said? What, what is Christ divided? Look at your factions. Look at all your boasting. Is Christ divided? If Christ is divided, you do not have all things. Only in Christ undivided, in the church, can we claim all things that God has already given to us by His Spirit. Now Paul summarizes what he has said about preachers and leaders and the futility of the Corinthians judging their success by worldly standards when he picks up in chapter 1 of verse 4. In both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul has to defend himself and his apostleship. It's easy to understand why. In their belittling and disregard of Paul, they also belittle and disregard the apostles' teaching, the gospel. The two go together. Listen as Paul writes, this is how we should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's just a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. You see, they're challenging the apostolic authority and sitting in judgment of the apostolic message, which is the gospel. So Paul says three basic things about his apostleship. And we can apply these things to pastors and to teachers, preachers in the church today, but the meaningful connection is not so much the leadership position held, but the gospel ministry involved. That's the connection. And the three basic things are servant, faithfulness, and judgment. Servant, faithfulness, and judgment. That's what Paul tells us about. How are we to think about the apostles? How are we to think about gospel ministers? Paul says we're to think of them as servants and stewards. Who are they servants of? Christ. They are servants of Christ to you, the church. Paul is one of the all things, remember, given to the church by Christ. Gospel ministers serve the church because they serve Christ. We're to think of gospel ministers as servants, but also stewards. Stewards of the mysteries of God. That is the gospel. Paul has already used this word mystery to refer to the gospel back in chapter 2. 
Gospel stewards are responsible to give you what God wants you to have. Not what itching ears want to hear. Paul is careful to give milk to the young and meat to the mature. Instead of one sermon on the wisdom of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 all the way to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 21, give them nine sermons on the wisdom of God. Each from a different perspective. Some will drink repeatedly of the milk of the saving wisdom of God. And they may say, this week's sermon sounds just like last week's sermon. But it still makes me love Jesus more. Just a little bit more. Because that's what they need. And some will chew on the meat of the depth and breadth of the wisdom of God in Christ. And they may say, each, each sermon sounds completely different. And I never knew that God had given me all these things. Because that's what they need. You see, the steward's more than just a waiter. He's an overseer. He's a steward of a household. He has responsibilities to his fellow servants in the local church. So that you mature in the faith and grow in your service to God. Your servants too. Paul instructs gospel ministers in chapter two of Timothy, or excuse me, chapter four of 2 Timothy, this way. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul says, give them the gospel. Give them the gospel. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Give them the gospel over and over and over again. You just do your job and here's what will happen. The Spirit of God will use the Word of God to build up the people of God. If you'll just be faithful to do what you're called to do, that's what will happen. Paul says that gospel ministers are to be faithful. These servants, these stewards, are to be faithful. Faithful to whom? Well, faithful to Christ. They direct report to Christ whom they serve. But that's not all. They're responsible to the gospel itself that's been entrusted to them as well. They're stewards of this gospel, these mysteries of God. They have a responsibility to it. The Corinthians want Paul to be a different kind of steward. They want him to drop the words cross and Christ crucified from his public speaking and they need to be corrected. And Paul has the God-given authority to do that in the church. The gospel minister has been given a responsibility first, and then also the authority to carry out that responsibility in the church. The authority to be faithful to his calling and to the gospel in the church. I mean, these Corinthians 
They're just obnoxious. I mean, this is ridiculous. Look at them. Listen to them. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. Look at me. How ridiculous. It's absurd. That Paul has this much patience with them can only be credited to the Spirit of God already. Paul is the steward of the God-given authority to set the church right when they're wrong. And that's what he's doing. To stop their accommodation of worldliness, which is corrupting their purity, and dividing Christ's church. The gospel minister is to be faithful to the Father who called him, faithful to the Son who saved him, faithful to the Spirit who equips him. He's to be faithful to the gospel entrusted to him. And he's to be faithful to his fellow servants in the church of every age, every maturity level, to equip you for the work of ministry and to discipline when servants sin. And who judges whether he's successful or not. Paul says that only Jesus judges the faithful, faithfulness excuse me, of his gospel ministers. I mean, that's kind of in summary. The Corinthians were all about success, remember? We, want success. we know what it looks like. We want you to look like this. We want you to talk like this. We want you to say these things. Don't say those things. Those don't bring success. And they didn't think twice about passing judgment on the Apostle Paul. And Paul's response is truly enlightening. Paul's response is truly enlightening. Listen to what he says. You know what? It's a very small thing, like, like this, very small. It's a very small thing that you, the church, should judge whether I'm a faithful gospel ministry or not. You know, it's also a very small thing, by which he means it's not a thing at all. That anyone would judge my faithfulness in gospel ministry by the standards of this age. Now, Paul's not talking about an annual evaluation of ministers based on a job description and performance by numbers. He's not talking about that. He's also not saying that there's no room for churches or elder bodies to evaluate the leadership at all. He's not saying that. He's saying that people are not qualified to pass judgment on the faithfulness of gospel ministers. Now, assuming you're on the road to gospel ministry, right? Assuming they're preaching the truth, and that they meet the biblical standards and qualifications for eldership. In fact, Paul says he's not qualified to judge himself in this area. He doesn't mean there's no room for personal improvement. He's not saying he's perfect. What he means is that having done some self-evaluation, he's not aware of any unfaithfulness in his gospel ministry. But even that doesn't mean there isn't. Paul says that only the Lord is qualified to judge the hearts and the faithfulness of his gospel ministers. That's the level of judgment that Paul's talking about. Which means that the level of judgment the Corinthians were laying upon them were, were at that heart level. They, they, were really, they were really criticizing him way beyond what we might look at as the superficiality of his oratory. Maybe we're going much deeper. Paul reveals that here. The level of their judgment was deep. You're an unsuccessful gospel minister, Paul. It was a criticism of the man and his message. 
you kind of can't separate those two things. The problem is they're just judgmental. They're just judgmental in their empty boasting and in their worldly criticisms. So Paul says, don't be so judgmental. You're not in the place of Christ. Just stop being so judgy, okay? You're just being too judgy. Lay off. It's not your job. Each gospel minister, based on his works, right? Based on how he built upon the foundation, will receive his condemnation from God at the right time, which is when Christ returns. You know, we can hear Paul's heart as he, as he, he kind of pulls all these three things together in chapter 9. If you wanted to turn there, in, just a little later in, in 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 16, Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Paul is in gospel ministry and he's free from the burden of anxiety and judgment because that rests in Christ, not in people. What's so amazing to me is this pattern. This pattern that we've seen Paul talk about apostles or gospel ministers is instructive for all of Christ's servants in the church. Don't you hear that? You're called to be servants too, right? All of us have been called to believe in the gospel, to trust in Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins, and together to serve, to submit ourselves to Christ that we might have all of those things. And we have all been called to serve Christ by serving his church. Just as Paul has laid the gospel foundation, others are building upon it, we we all are to be building up one another in love. We are all to be rich in doing good works. And we're all to be storing up treasures in heaven as we await Christ's return. That's all of us. As we await to hear that commendation in Jesus' voice. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we do all of these things knowing that God is sovereignly ruling over all things for our good. Such that all things are ours. Because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So don't deceive yourself. That is the wisdom of God in which we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and your care. All of the things that we have 
given to us by your Spirit. Lord, help us. Lord, change us. That our fascination and dependence upon worldly wisdom, the wisdom of this age, would fade and fall by the wayside. And that instead we would trust completely that you are doing all things for those who love you. And that we would live accordingly for your glory. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.